0: Top of the morning to you. My name is Sean, and I coordinate the community groups here at Reality. We're going to start in verse uh, 13 of Matthew 16 in the uh, NASB. God's Word says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one Of the prophets. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word this morning that never returns to You void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which You've sent it. And Lord, I do pray that You would prepare good soil this morning. I pray for fertile soil to receive Your Word. Remove the rocks. Remove the thorns. Allow Your precious seed to penetrate deeply, producing a harvest 30 and 60 and a hundredfold, so that Jesus, you would be on full display in all your beauty and all your majesty, that you would get all the glory and all the praise. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a popular bumper sticker in the 1960s that read, "Jesus, yes, Church, no." Now, I'm into the church. I love the church, and you might be saying, well, of course you do. You work for the church. But just because you work for the church doesn't necessarily mean that you're in to the church. Take, for example, Bobby. There was a knock on Bobby's bedroom door. Go away, he cried as he pulled the covers over his head. Bobby, it's time to get up. The voice shared from the other side of the door. But Bobby moaned and groaned and just rolled towards the wall, hiding himself. Then he heard the doorknob open, and his wife came in and sat at the foot of the bed and gently roused him. Bobby, it's time to get up. We need to get ready to go to church. I don't want to go to church. I'm tired of church. Why do I have to go to church? The people there don't appreciate me, they don't respect me, they just ignore me. I don't want to go. Why do I have to go? Well, his wife replied, there's two good reasons that you need to go to church. Number one, today is Sunday and this is the Lord's Day and that's what we do. We want to honor God by going to church. And number two, you are the senior pastor of the church. Now, full disclosure, that would never happen here at 1954 Goodyear Avenue, 93003. Why? Because Jesus is the senior pastor of the church, and he loves his church. In fact, he refers to her as his bride, and maybe that's one of the issues. For some, church is seen as a cold and religious political institution. And when I say the word Church, what do you think of? Maybe you think of, well, that's what we're doing right now. This is church in these four walls. Personally, when I think of church, I think of community groups, a small group doing life together, being transparent and growing in vitality, right? But Jesus loves his church, and he's not ashamed of her. Speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 2, it says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So why do people reject the church? Maybe it's because Jesus isn't the priority. The title of this message is Jesus, Yes, Church, Yes. And we're going to consider what Jesus meant when he talks about the church in three aspects. Number one, the birth of Jesus' church, the building of Jesus' church, and number three, the brilliance of Jesus' church. The birth of Jesus' church starts with a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Last week, Chad warned us of the harmful influence of self-righteousness and worldliness on the part of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now we find ourselves in Caesarea Philippi some 25 miles uh, northeast of the Sea of Galilee, principally Greco-Roman culture, mainly non-Jewish, so Jesus would have felt comfortable being in that environment as he shares with his disciples. Now Caesarea Philippi was the hub of Syrian Baal worship, and there was no fewer than 14 idol temples in that area, as you can appreciate there. There was a great temple of white marble built to the godhead of Caesar. It had been built by Herod the Great. And Caesarea Philippi was the birthplace of the great god Pan, who was the god of nature. In fact, the name had been changed from Panias to Caesarea Philippi. So Herod the Great built this city and dedicated it to Caesar Augustus as well as to his son Philip. There was an inscription dedicated to Augustus in 9 B.C. that says this, Augustus was sent as a savior that he might end war and arrange all things, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news of the world. Now notice the verbiage here describing Caesar, Augustus Caesar. He's a savior. And since his birthday, this is the, the good tidings, which is another word for the gospel, the, the, the evangelion, the good news, right? His birthday marks the gospel, right? It's a false gospel, of course. But referring to, god, to Augustus as a god. So it's in this context of blatant, horrific idolatry and emperor worship that Jesus... Asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" Now the disciples previously gave the correct answer, as an as a result of an emotional experience, because they had witnessed the miracle. Remember Nathaniel, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there in John one, Jesus Philip uh, saw Jesus and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." And then he brought his friend Nathaniel there. And Jesus said to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael exclaimed, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, Jesus, being omniscient, knew the heart of Nathanael. And it says that Nathanael was under the fig tree, with, which is a euphemism in Judaism of speaking a person about a person who studies diligently the law of Moses. And God knew that about Nathanael, that he was a man without guile, without deceit, that was faithful to the Scriptures. In Matthew 14, remember when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples in the boat exclaimed, truly, you are the Son of God. After the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, Peter exclaimed, you are the Holy One of God. So in that moment of euphoria, of an emotional experience, they did declare Jesus to be God. But Jesus asked them in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And again, in this panorama of false gods, of the God Pan and Zeus and all this, Jesus asked the question. Now, when you think of John the Baptist, what comes to mind? Well, you think of someone who came calling for national repentance and righteousness. Soldiers, quit oppressing. Tax gatherers, stop extorting. Fathers, be good to your kids. When you think of Elijah, what comes to mind? Well, that's where miracles were performed. Remember Elijah... He stopped the rain. He multiplied the oil. He called down fire from heaven. He raised the widow's son from the dead. He parted the river Jordan. When you think of Jeremiah, what comes to mind? Well, he was the weeping prophet, remember? And he had that great burden to see the lost sheep of Israel be united and return back to God. And then it says, oh, one of the prophets, or specifically that prophet which refers to the prophet there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, who would fully and accurately explain the law of Moses. Now, John Corson suggests that there are churches today built on one or more of those foundations. For instance, the John the Baptist kind of church. That's who Jesus is, calling society to repent, seeking reformation through political means, picketing, Marches, write your congressmen, new legislation. That will change our world. Then there's the Elijah kind of church. That's who Jesus is. Let's believe God for signs and wonders and miracles. That will change our world. Then there's the Jeremiah church. That's who Jesus is. Compassion Ministries. Let's reach the lost through our evangelism programs, our global missions. That will change our world, or that prophet church. That's who Jesus is. Church should be a teaching center. We'll offer Bible classes every day of the week. We'll teach Greek and Hebrew. We'll understand God's worth so well. Hermeneutically, boy, that's a difficult word. Hermeneutics, hermeneutically flawless. That will change our world. But notice, Jesus did not say, well done. You got it. Blessed are you. In fact, one question led to another. Who do men say? Now, who do you say that I am? Jesus right now is after a verdict for a confession of who he is. This is basically in Caesarea Philippi, the graduation speech of Jesus, right? The time has come. The lessons are over. The course has reached its climax Now is the final exam. And this is the most important question for you and me this morning. If you're not convinced about who Jesus is, everything else will not make sense. Belief dictates our behavior. Everything hinges on being confident of who he is. Who do you say Jesus is? Now this does not mean who is Jesus to you or in your opinion, based on objective truth, based on empirical evidence, who is Jesus? And the question has to be answered. Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, you can do that right now. You can declare, I do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after Peter made that statement in verse 16, verse 17 says, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the birth of Jesus' church right here. And so after two and a half years, walking with Jesus, observing Jesus, ministering with Jesus, Peter confidently testifies that he now believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And in a monotheistic framework, this is a powerful, for a Jew to declare Jesus as God, this is an extraordinary thing, a powerful thing, but a necessary thing. Now, Jesus is quick to point out that Peter did not discover this on his own. This was revealed to him. It wasn't his superior intellect or calculation or analysis. It wasn't his intuition, nor his religious tradition, nor his understanding of Old Testament prophecy that showed him this. There's nothing in the human realm that could reveal this. No man calls Jesus Lord but by the Spirit of God revealing him. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus declares, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal wills to reveal him. The Father reveals the Son, and the Son reveals the Father. Only by divine revelation can we know Christ. Now, why do I emphasize this? Or well, why does Jesus emphasize this? Better said, God reveals himself to us, and it's not because of our intuition or wisdom or ability to discern that we discover Christ. I think in our testimonies is where we see this come to fruition. It's not so much that we were empty and we were walking in the world and all of a sudden we said we were tired and we decided to give Jesus a chance so he could fill that little donut hole in our heart. I think a more accurate testimony is we were fugitives on the run. We didn't want anything to do with Jesus, and he caught up to us like Jonah. We were on our way to Tarshish, and it was God that came up. And he reached us and he transformed us so that he gets all the glory and all the praise. And that should be our testimony. So we do not uh, discover, it's not our discovery that we come to know Jesus. It's his pursuing of us. For instance, if you go to Yosemite, you go to this beautiful place, right? And it's just extraordinary. Now, we could say that By going to Yosemite, we could perceive that this just didn't happen, right? That it was created. This is a beautiful creation, that the creation points to a creator. The design points to a designer. But even observing this beauty in Yosemite or looking at Half Dome or climbing Half Dome, which I highly recommend, you will not come to the conclusion that Jesus is Messiah. That has to be revealed to you. That has to be revealed to me. And that's what God has done through his son. So after you and I answer the first question, we are now confronted by a second question. Pilate asks this, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Who do you say Jesus is? And number two, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with Jesus? Well, we know what Jesus is doing. That's our second point. He is building his church, the building of Jesus' church. Now notice here, he is not building a church. He is building his church. In 1 Peter, the word says that you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 18, you know, you are Peter, right? And upon this rock I will build my church. Now we need to do some grammatical understanding or teaching here. You know, the Greek word for Peter is Petros. And Petros means little rock or little stone. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, he uses a different Greek word. It's not Peter, it's not Petros, it's Petra which means this gigantic cliff face, right? I will build my church. The church is not built on any man, any movement, any organization. The church of Jesus is built upon his declaration, Peter's declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So maybe we can tweak our, our, the title of our, our sermon this morning. Jesus, yes... His church, yes. His church, yes. Now, what is the church? Again, in the original language, it's a compound noun that literally means called out ones. Called out ones. Ekklesia, called out ones. And this is the first time it's used in the New Testament. But interestingly enough, The Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, was translated in Greek. And we find this word, this Greek word, ekklesia, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 4.10 that says this, with Moses speaking, he says, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me. So this is the verb form of that noun, ekklesia, Called out ones to assemble. The called out ones are called the people unto me. And that gives us a beautiful little hint of what the church is. It's, a, it's a, his people being called out and assembled under him. Under his glory. For his righteousness. For his renown. Now, this is not a physical separation from the world. When you think of the term called out ones, right? called out ones, it's not physical separation from the world, but rather being different or distinct in the midst of the world. To be different and distinct in the midst of the world. And this is how Jesus is building his church. And I think historically, this is one of the errors of the big C church that we have made. The idea, no, we need to isolate. We need to come out of the world and isolate ourselves from the world. That was never God's intent. We're called out of the world, but to be different and distinct in the midst of the world. Jesus said in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. This is Jesus' prayer right there in John 17. He's praying to the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, not to isolate from the world, but rather to keep them, to preserve them, to protect them from the evil one. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this imperative, this command form, speaks of a continuous action. It can be translated as stop being conformed to this world. Paul's writing to the, the, the Christians there in Rome. Stop being conformed to this world. Stop, being, uh, stop allowing yourselves to be molded by this world. Stop imitating the world. But rather be transformed, the metamorphosis, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation begins with the renovation, with the renewing of our mind as we meditate on God's word. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of the wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, I'm no sheep herder, but I can only imagine how difficult this would be for sheep to dwell in the midst of wolves. In fact, if I could be so daring, I would say it's an impossibility for sheep to To coexist with wolves. In fact, I would dare to say that no one here has ever seen sheep in the midst of wolves. Maybe we've seen sheep inside of wolves, but we've never seen sheep in the midst of wolves, right? It would require supernatural protection for a sheep to coexist with a wolf. And that's exactly what Jesus promises. Notice, He says, I send you out. It's not Satan. Satan doesn't send us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's Jesus, the good shepherd. He sends you out. He sends me out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Philippians 2.15. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Light shines brightest in the midst of the darkness. Now, maybe you're, you're the only Christian at your work or in your home, or in your neighborhood. And I know in a work situation, it's tough when people get privy that you're a Christian, and they make fun of you, they ostracize you, they make jokes about you. And I know it'd be normal just to think, well, maybe the Lord's calling me to, to a different employment. You know, maybe I could work with Christians. That would be awesome, right? I could avoid all this. Well, how do you know, dear friend, that God has not strategically planted you, sown you in that environment. Because light shines brightest in the midst of the darkness. Before I came on staff, I was working in an industry that's predominantly non-Christian. And not that I'm anything special, but I just felt that God had strategically placed me there to be a light. Obviously, to be a good employee, to be a good worker, right? That brings the greatest glory to God. But also, praying for those opportunities, those windows that God opens that we can enter into and share the love of Christ. And that's God's call, and that's what God's exhorting the church at Philippi. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Sounds like 2017 here in Ventura, right? Among whom you appear as lights in the world. So it's not isolation, rather it's infiltration that God's calling us to. And then Jesus promises the disciples as well as to us this morning, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Death and the devil cannot overpower his church. Now, there's an opening in the cavern there at Caesarea Philippi that you can appreciate that was referred to as the gates to Hades. And inside this cavern uh, they would offer sacrifice to all these fertility gods and trying to placate Pan, the god of nature. Just horrific things took place in there. So how graphic Jesus would say, that cavern, that gate to Hades, that door to the underworld cannot prevail against the church. Cannot prevail against his people. Now, Jesus is the rock, right? It's not Peter. Peter is the little stone. He's the Petros. But Jesus said upon this Petra, this big rock, this big face, right, he would build his church. When people say Jesus, you're not simply a motivator for us politically, a teacher to us intellectually, a power for us miraculously, nor a program for us in mission ministry. You're everything. You're all there is. We just want to know you. We want to love you. We want to walk with you and learn about you and become more like you. Jesus will build his church upon their confession. And when a group of people come together and say, Jesus, we love you, we're impressed with you, we want to learn of you and walk with you, guess what happens? The community around such a group begins to change. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Now, of course, we love him because of his great love for us, right? He builds his church because of his great love for you and I. But that's what God does. He calls out the people. He assembles them in the midst of Of the darkness and the midst of the wolves so that he gets all the glory. So Jesus then declares, right, that there will be transformation. And we do believe that. Transformation will occur. There will be signs and wonders. You know, it says in Mark 16 that signs and wonders will follow those who believe. And those signs and wonders will confirm the preaching of God's word. But notice, it does not say that believers are to follow after signs and wonders. Signs and wonders will follow those who believe in him. And God will confirm the preaching of his word through signs and wonders. And there will be compassionate outreach. There will be a love for the word of God. There will be an impact in society. All those things we've discussed. But it's on the rock, on who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus basically says, hey, I'm the Messiah, but by the way, you can't tell anyone, right? Jesus is now declaring himself to be king. And Augustus Caesar just got demoted. In verse 19 of Matthew 16, Jesus continues speaking to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he was warned, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. The first point here Jesus builds his church by loosing and binding. By loosing and binding. What's this all about? Just as it happens in heaven. Peter and every believer, we have the keys, which I, sp- which I think speaks of blessings and disciplines. Not to have heaven do our bidding. It's not to manipulate heaven to do what we want, but rather we submit to what's already going on in heaven. We loose and bind, even as it ha- happens in heaven, in harmony with Jesus. Now, losing gives us a picture of freedom, right? Freedom. From sin. I think it's speaking here regarding Peter of the extraordinary privilege of proclaiming the gospel for the first time there in Pentecost, where so many came to Christ. And binding refers to church discipline, the authority and responsibility that the church has to discipline their own. And we'll talk more about that in Matthew 18 in the next couple weeks or months or years or whenever we get there. But you have to believe that these Messianic Jews had to be giddy and elated. Finally, Jesus, you're talking our language. Finally. You're talking about a kingdom. You're talking about keys, right? You're talking about building. You're talking about we're going to overthrow Caesar. We're going to uh, overcome the devil and Hades, right? Just like it says in Deuteronomy 28 will be the head and not the tail. We'll be above and not underneath. Hip hip hooray for Jesus. He's our king, right? But Jesus puts the kibosh on that immediately. In verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Be killed? No, no, no. We got the keys. Let's build. Let's over... And be killed, but he doesn't stop there, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. The second point here, Jesus builds his church on the basis of the cross. On the basis of the cross. Peter didn't discern properly how Jesus builds his church. He says here, God forbid it. Never, Lord. Which, by the way, is a complete contradiction. It's impossible to refer to Jesus as Lord and at the same time say no to him. It's completely untenable. Completely incongruent. Lord's means Sovereign, owner, master. And you don't say no to a sovereign. Chuck Colson, who was uh, special counsel to President Nixon, said in one of his testimonies, he later became a believer. You remember his story. He got involved in Watergate, was placed in prison. But through that, became a Christian. But he said, as special counsel to President Nixon... You would never say no to the president. It's pretty daunting. And a president is is fallible authority, right? How much more the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. That was Peter's perspective, right? But Jesus was going to establish his kingdom on the base of his death and resurrection. But this was not the Messiah that Jesus declared. It wasn't the Christ he anticipated. A crown without a cross and glory without suffering is cheap grace. Listen to this. A crossless Christianity is a satanic Christianity. Let me say that again. A crossless Christianity is a satanic Christianity. And Jesus said to Peter, The rock man, right? (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. A cross in our culture is popular jewelry. But we need to remember that a cross was an instrument of execution in biblical times. And I know a lot of you wear crosses, and that's awesome. It's a reminder that you're a Christian, you belong to Him. But we need to remember that that cross is an instrument of execution. That thing you wear around your neck, those earrings you have, that thing you have on your navel, uh, that is an instrument of execution. Could you imagine wearing an electric chair around your neck? That's basically what a cross is. And we've kind of you know we've we've how do you say? It? I'm thinking in Spanish. Suavizar. We've 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 smoothed out. We we've really demeaned the meaning of the cross. It really speaks of death and separation, and that's what Jesus was willing to do for you and I. Now it's possible to be Christ-centered but not cross-centered, and this is indeed the oldest heresy that there is a crown without a cross. Jesus established his church through his death on the cross. And as members of his church, he has left us that example. We partner with him in the building up of his church when we identify with the cross of Christ. Notice with me in verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Third point here, he he builds his church when we as living stones die to ourselves. Christ died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. He died so that we could be glorified, but not to keep us from being crucified. For the Christian, the cross of Christ is not merely a past place of substitution. It is also a present place of daily execution. Well, that's that's profound. A daily rhythm of dying to ourselves, the old self being crucified, dying to our desires, our sin, our plans, and laying them all at the feet of Jesus. This is how he builds his church. Now, this is obviously counterintuitive. If you want to live, you must die. What? If you want to find your life, you must lose it. We die to ourselves allowing Jesus to take center stage, the place of preeminence. If you live for Jesus, the more you enjoy life now. If you live for comfort, you'll be miserable. If you live for his kingdom, you will be blessed. And there's great gain in dying. We have that beautiful verse regarding Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Bringing the Father glory, experiencing extraordinary communion with the Father. Our final point here this morning, Jesus, uh, the birth of Jesus' church, the building of Jesus' church, and number three, the brilliance of of Jesus' church. For the Son of Man is going to come in the, the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man see the Son of Man coming in his glory. It says in Titus two thirteen, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The brilliance of his church Is Jesus Himself. The brilliance of His church is Jesus Himself, the culmination of the church. And He will come to repay and to reward every man according to His deeds. And Paul was picturing that believer as a competitor in in a spiritual contest. And as a victorious athlete, they would appear on the Bema seat, that platform, and receive their perishable wreath, the reward. Well, the Christian, when he appears before the bema seat of Christ, will receive his imperishable reward. And then Jesus says, Some of you standing here will witness the death, resurrection, and second coming of Christ. Some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man returning in his kingdom. Now, did Jesus get this wrong? Was there... A couple of those disciples, John or James or Nathaniel, that actually witnessed the second coming of Christ? Well, you have to stay tuned. In Matthew 17, when we consider that, they'll help us understand what Jesus was talking about. But let me finish with this Who do you say Jesus is? He is the Savior, He is the Son of God. Is He your Savior? Is He your God and Lord? And the only appropriate response is, yes, Lord. And after you've answered that question, the second one, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Well, the exhortation of Jesus for us this morning is go to the cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life for the purpose of partnering with him in the building up of his church. And as believers, we have an awesome privilege to be an integral an active part of the bride of Christ, the church. So this morning we want to commit ourselves anew to Jesus and to his church that we, could be, that we could say in unison, Jesus, yes, his church, yes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Even this morning you are building your church and the gates of Hades. Death and the devil and sin cannot overpower it. Thank you so much, God, that that is our identity. We are the bride of Christ today. And, Lord, with that comes extraordinary privilege and responsibility. Help us to represent your bride well, Lord. Help us to use the keys, the authority you've given us to preach your word, to loose and to bind, Lord. Lord, we love you so much, and we know it's because you first loved us. We thank you for your word this morning. So let's respond through worship on the carpets. A great time just to recommit to understand our identity as his church, his bride. We have the Lord's table to remember his extraordinary sacrifice, his willingness to die on the cross of Calvary for us. And as always, the prayer team is available to intercede for and with, the, and with each of you this morning. Lord bless